Uh, if, if you're new here, you may not know uh, that much about me. Let me give you a little anecdote here. My, my ancestors uh, have some swarthy pigmentation. Just leave it at that. Uh, my paternal grandmother was told by her grandmother that she was a full-blood Cherokee. Some of you have these stories in your family, right? My father told me uh, all my life that we were largely uh, Native American blood mixed with European bloodlines from uh, mainly Scotland. Now, this is the days before you could spit in a vial and send it off, okay? So we all have stories of who we are, and they are passed down from, you know, our family. Spencer, I bet, you know, you're the descendant of Louis XIV or something through Louisiana and all that Cajun blood, and who knows? You know, you may be royalty. Uh, and so I've been told stories like that all, all my life, and for 50 years that was the story of my ethnicity. If you said something about the way I looked, I would say, well, that's because, you know, of this, that, and the other. My skin does not burn really easily. It tans real quickly. Like if I'm out all day and I, you know, and I get a little pink, maybe by tomorrow I'm brown. And, uh, oh, well, that's because we're Indian blood. That's what my parents told me all my life, which are liars. Well, it, uh, anyway, uh, they, you know, I'm a little vertically challenged, not too tall. And they said, well, you're, you're Cherokee, that's why. They're shorter people. You know, my hair turned gray at 17, and it's real, getting real coarse, and now it's starting to get real curly and totally out of control. I'm going to grow an afro, I think, next. Uh, and they're like, well, you're Indian blood, and that's, you know, that's, you know, your hair's gray early, and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Until a few years ago, two years ago, when my uncle and my sister sent their DNA samples in for analysis. And guess what? I, I feel for Elizabeth Warren. I've told you this. Because she was told stories all her life that she was, you know, some Indian princess. Uh, we sent the DNA from my uncle and sister off. Zero Indian blood, Native American blood in our bloodlines. Zero. You're like, well, what about the pigmentation? And we have markers from West Africa. Oh. That wasn't the story my family told. It's a completely different story. Uh, I was blessed to meet some awesome people in my corporate life when I used to work in the corporate world, one of which became a lifelong friend of mine. Uh, she passed not long ago, but she was, she was very special to me. We're just the best of friends. She was raised in a family of girls, and she was one of many girls in, in the family she was raised in. All of her sisters were fair-skinned, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed. Now, my friend was not. She had jet black hair, mocha skin, and green eyes. Now, her sisters teased her her whole life. You're the daughter of the milkman or the mailman or, you know, they, and it was just kind of a joke in the family, you know. You, you were adopted. You don't look anything like the rest of the family. And uh, her, her uh, she always struggled with some self-esteem issues uh, because I was, I mean, obviously really good friends, but I, I knew this. And uh, eventually I witnessed to her, she's to attend church here before she passed. And uh, anyway, she had some self-esteem issues and struggled with some identity issues all her life. A and as an adult, way late in life, 
uh, she discovered that she actually was not the daughter of her parents. She was the daughter of the man she knew as an uncle in the family. And because of some circumstances in the family, the uncle had given her to the people she knew as her parents, and they had raised her as one of their daughters. They already had a house full of daughters. What's one more? And they raised my, my friend along with their daughter. And they never told her that she wasn't their daughter. You know, she never knew the real story until really late in life. And, and I'm not sure if any of you have ever lived an experience like this or you know anyone who, who has. But I can assure you, uh, it is shocking to discover that you're not who you thought you were. Uh, it's shocking to discover late in life some major twist about the story your family has told. Uh, today I see a, a whole generation of people that are struggling with identity issues in many different facets, many different identity issues. And surprisingly, this is one of the topics from the ancient text of Ezra 2 that we're going to deal with this morning. Now, let me give you some preface in these sermons here. My, my goal this morning is to take what appears to be the most boring chapter in the Bible and try to bring it to life for you. So you bear with me. I don't have an easy lift this morning. If you have a Bible open in front of you and you're looking at Ezra 2, you're going to see a whole lot of Ezra chapter 2. It is a very long chapter. I will not read every verse. Do not get scared. All right? Let me see if I can recap for you because I'm going to have to, we're going to, have to do this every week to get our minds right. In our English Bibles, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are two different books. In the ancient Hebrew Old Testament, the book of Ezra is only one book and Nehemiah is the last part. It's the ending of the book of Ezra. So in the Hebrew Bible, there's only one book. It's Ezra. To you, when they started printing Bibles for you in English in the modern times, they split it into two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. It's really just Ezra, okay? That's what I want you to see first of all, that it's just one book, and the modern people split it into two just to help you make a distinct, but it's really more confusing because it's one story not a bunch of different stories. So with that in mind, let me see if I can give you a little bit of a timeline. Uh, Ezra is chronologically the last book in your Bible, uh, in the Old Testament. Now this is going to blow some of your minds because you've memorized the books of the Bible and you know it's First and Second Samuel and, and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. Well, Esther actually happens in the middle of Ezra and Nehemiah. And Ezra and Nehemiah, even though they're at the beginning of your Old Testament, they're the last part of the Old Testament. And you're like, why is everybody confusing us? I don't know. But I'm just telling you how to get unconfused. The story we're going to tell you from Ezra and Nehemiah over the next few weeks is actually the end of the Old Testament. It's the last story being told before Jesus Christ is going to show up. Now I want to tell you several things, okay? Major prophets just means really thick book in your Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. Now we preached through Daniel. Jeremiah said you're going to go into captivity. We'll see some of those 
verses over these weeks. Daniel, it actually happened. Ezekiel is captive with Daniel. Now, y'all need to beat Jeremy up because he wants to preach on Haggai next week. And I really want Jeremy to do two parts on Ezekiel. So y'all see if you can leverage some pressure. His boss is not doing anything to afflict him. But you see if you can slash his tires, key his car, do something. Uh, Because I'd love for you to understand the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel actually went into captivity with Daniel. But I don't want to tell Jeremy's story. All right? All right. And, and, and so there's the, the minor prophets, Obadiah, uh, Joel, Jonah, Amos, Micah, Hosea, Nahum, Zephaniah. Okay, but when you get into the Persian post-exile now, and the children of Israel are going home, the prophets that are going to prophesy at the end of the Old Testament are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, I know you've never heard a sermon from them. We're going to try to summarize them in the next few weeks so you'll all understand who Haggai is, what he's saying, who Malachi is, what he's saying, who Zechariah is, and, and what his message is. And some of them are wild. And you'll, you'll enjoy, I think, the ride. But I want you to see this in your mind, to know that when Babylon falls, now Israel can go free. We're post-exile. They're going to go back to the promised land. It's the story of Ezra, really Ezra Nehemiah, if you want to buy our Bibles, Ezra Nehemiah. The story of Esther would fall into that. And there's three main prophets prophesying Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So the big thing to get in your mind is this story is the end of the Old Testament. Now here's what you need to know. Before Jesus shows up, there's a 400-year period of complete silence. There is no prophet prophesying. Israel has gone into stagflation spiritually, economically. They're oppressed by the Roman Empire. There's a 400-year period of nothingness from spiritual writings, really, before Jesus shows up. It's the time of the Maccabees and turmoil and all kinds of stuff. And then Christ shows up. John the Baptist and Jesus walk onto the stage. That's 400 years before Christ of silence. The story we're telling right now goes from 500 to 400. So here's what I want to say to you. When you open the New Testament and you see the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you see Israel and you see Jesus and you see the problems and you see Jesus trying to present the message of the kingdom and share the gospel and you're like, wow, these Pharisees are fighting against him and it seems like the villains of the New Testament are the Pharisees. This is the story that tells you how it got to where it was. So if you ever wondered, wow, how did Israel get into this condition? This is the story we're about to tell from Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are about uh, captives in Babylon being set free by the Persians who have conquered Babylon. And now they've been longing for home for 70 years. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet said, after 70 years you'll be released and, and now they're released and they want to go home and many of them are going to go home in three different migrations. Three different waves of people are going to go home by the thousands to re-inhabit uh, southern Israel, the, the land of Judah, the area around Jerusalem. And God wants them to long for home, but God wants them to long for Him and His house as much as they long to build their own houses. The first return is going to be led by Zerubbabel the governor and uh, i'll preach that message next week Uh, the second wave 
is led back by Ezra. The third wave is led back by a new governor named Nehemiah. So now you have to remember what part of history these people are living in. They're still in the Old Covenant. They're under the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant or or the Abrahamic Covenant. Uh, They're not in the covenant that you and I live under in the New Testament. And uh, obviously they're still looking forward to deliverance in the form of a Messiah. They're looking for the Savior to come. And for them to be God's people means they have to return to a pre-captivity form of worship. The, The old Moses Abraham ways. They've got to go back to the old form of temple worship and they have to go back to the Mosaic law and they have to re-identify as being God's people. Now here's what happens in Ezra chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2 presents to you a list of roughly 50,000 people, 40 to 50,000 people who are the first wave of God's people returning from Babylon slash Persia and going back to resettle the land of Israel and rebuild Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 1 focused on the prophecy. In other words, God said, it's gonna, I'm going to set you free after 70 years. And boom, you're set free after 70 years. It, the, chapter 1 focuses on when God says something, God always keeps his word. And that's an important lesson. You all all need to learn that. We need to practice that. We need to believe that. We need to believe that when God says this is going to happen, it's going to happen. It's going to happen when God says, and it's going to happen as God says. Chapter 2 is not about the prophecy. Chapter 2 focuses completely on the people, the people who make out the ranks of this group called the people of God. So the author of Ezra, Ezra Nehemiah, the author is going to go through some great effort uh, to, to chronicle a lot of details. There's letters from the king in here. There's memoranda in here. There, there, there's all kinds of things contained in the Ezra Nehemiah books. But the author is going to go through some great effort to show you what life was like in the post-exile time in Israel's history. And, and the one thing I want you to come away from this morning is that God's people, focus on this, God's people were obsessed with their genealogical ancestry. Now today there's been a big revival of, you know, with, with the, the 23andMe and Ancestry.com and all of this of tracing out your family trees and your roots and all of this. And that's cool. And I think that may be very fulfilling for, for many people. It kind of grounds you in your identity. For, for whatever revival of that we've got going on, th- this is on steroids, what you're reading. They are not just curious. Uh, The post-exile Jews are completely fixated. They are obsessed with their genealogical ancestry because they believe that their ancestry defined them as the true people of God. So there's this big focus, beginning in chapter number 2, on proving that you're an ancestor of Abraham and therefore part of the true covenant people of God. Now, you've got a long list of names. That's really all that chapter 2 is. It's a long list of names, and the names are divided into two groups. So let's divide chapter 2 into two pieces. The first group goes from verse number 1 to verse number 58. (laughs) That's a long list of people. Uh, The first list of names 
is the chronicle of those who can prove their ancestry from Abraham with documentation. The second group at the end of the chapter is the group, small group, that cannot prove their ancestry with documentation. So if you just understand, there's two groups we're about to deal with. How will they deal with them? Let's see what it looks like. Now we're returning home. This is where the story begins. For the past 70 years, the people of God have been assimilated into the kingdom of Babylon, and now the kingdom of Persia has conquered Babylon. The new Persian king issues a decree and says all Jews can go home and rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. And while they were captives, you have to remember, God's people, although they held positions in the government, they couldn't just make laws themselves. They were there doing the king's bidding. So they didn't have authority or autonomy or freedom. They were exiles. They were captives in a foreign land. And during the exile, they did not and they could not keep the Mosaic law. It would be impossible for them. There is no temple to worship in. It's been demolished. So you can't keep that part of the law. There's no corporate worship as the nation of Israel. You can't keep the feasts in that way. Three times a year shall all males appear before me. You can't keep that part of the law. Uh, there's no kosher food stores. You can't keep that part of the law. There's no uh, kosher uh, shopping centers where you can buy garments made according to the law. So they couldn't keep the law because they were captives and they had been dispersed across the nations. So the first order of business when they came home was reestablishing the destroyed temple. So that's going to get all the focus in the coming weeks. Got to rebuild the temple and then we've got to reinstitute the Mosaic law so that we can be God's people yet again. And the big thing that's happening is that, that God wants to happen is he wants his people to come back and begin to worship him and to begin to be who he created them to be. Now here's what you need to know. Hopes are running high. I mean, when they're liberated and the king opens his checkbook and starts writing checks and says, go build the temple. Oh, wait, don't leave without money. Here's money. Don't leave without paperwork open in the way. Here's all my power. The king totally empowered them to go do what they want to do. God has completely opened the way for them. Man, hopes are running high that Israel is going to be a nation again. We're going to be a people again. We're free to worship again. And, I mean, just the hopes and the dreams are coming true. It's all just about to happen. Hopes are running so high. And really what's happening from a big Bible story is a new exodus. This is a retelling of the exodus that happened when they came out of Egypt. And they were released from Pharaoh. Let me read from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 48 verse 17. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you. Who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands. Your peace would have been like a river. Your well-being like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never have been blotted out nor destroyed from before me. Now listen to the word of the Lord, verse 20. Leave Babylon. Flee from the Babylonians. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. 
Send it out to the ends of the earth and say, The Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. Can you feel the passion rising among the Jews? The prophets are coming true right before our eyes. This was written way in the past. And now it's coming true right before our eyes. Although they've been exiled for 70 years, they still have an inheritance that God has given them. They still have a right to be God's covenant people. And although they've been in captivity, all of God's word will come to pass. His promises are true. They are valid. God has never forgotten about them. He's just punishing them because they forsook him and chased after idols. They still have a connection to the covenant through their father, Abraham. Now, the opening of verse 58 uh, comprises the other report. It's the report of those uh, who, who cannot uh, 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 trace their covenant back with documentary proof. Let's deal with the ones who have proof. First of all, when the list opens with those who have proof, it begins with the leadership team. It says, here are the leaders of Israel. I'm going to read this, but not much else of this chapter. Now, these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town. In the company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. Now those 11, together with the chapter 1, remember there's no chapters in the original Bible, just one long writing. We've already been introduced to another leader in chapter 1, and, and that's the appointed governor, Sheshbazar. Those 11 with Sheshbazar comprise 12 new leadership names. 12 is always an interesting number in the Old Testament. So what's happening is we've got a new exodus. Uh, we've got a new 12 leaders of Israel. We've got a new leadership team. Man, I'm, I'm feeling good now because we've got a whole new generation Remember what happens in the, in the Bible when a generation of people won't lead when it's your time to lead. God just says, okay, die, and then we'll get a new young group of leaders in here who will take the kingdom of God and move it forward. And that's really the story of the Old Testament. Generation gone, new generation emerges now. We've got 12 new leaders. We're marching back uh, to Zion now. Everything's looking good. Shesh Bazar is called the governor in chapter 1. We don't know what happens. But by the time we're in chapter number 2 and going forward, Zerubbabel will be the governor. I don't know if he died. I don't know if he got malaria. I don't know if he got diphtheria. I don't know if he got whooping cough. Nobody knows. Okay? Just we know he was there and he's not. Okay? So he either was recalled. A million things could have happened. But Shesh Bazaar, you won't hear him anymore. Now it's only going to talk about Zerubbabel as, as the governor. Now Zerubbabel is important. Two key guys show up now. For the, for the rest of this story and in those prophets we were talking about. You'll hear their names a lot, especially in the book of like Haggai. You're going to hear them talking about people like uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel is going to get appointed as governor. And the reason it's important is he represents government. He is actually a part of King David's royal line. He is a child. He has documentary proof that he's a descendant of King David. The proof is very strong, and matter of fact, in Luke and in Matthew of the New Testament, when Jesus is introduced as the Messiah and the true King of Israel, Zerubbabel is mentioned in Jesus' line, 
and, and shows up as evidentiary proof all the way back to, to David. So Zerubbabel shows up, and then Joshua. This is not Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho, Joshua. It's not Moses and Joshua, Joshua. This is Joshua the high priest where, where many, many, many hundreds and hundreds of years later from the old Joshua now. Just another guy named Joshua. He is Joshua the high priest, and he's important because he has documentary proof that he is the great-great-grandson of Hilkiah, the former high priest, who was a descendant of, uh, of Aaron all the way back. So we've got two guys emerging now who, boy, they've got their pedigrees in line, and that's who Zerubbabel is, and that's who Joshua is. We've got a politician, and we've got a, a high priest. And from here on, the author calls our attention not just to the leaders, but to the people themselves. So let me tell you how the chapter's divided up. Verses 3 to 20 uh, give account of people who have connections to the past through family origin. So verses 3 to 20 will say this family's connected to this family's connected to this family. The language changes in verse 21. And the author says there's another group of people and they're connected to geographical cities of origin. In other words, these people are from Bethlehem, and these people are from Jerusalem, and these people are from uh, Shiloh, and these pe- it starts connecting people to cities of their nativity and where their people are. Then verses 36 through 58 tell of a group of people who are connected to previous vocations. We know they are who they claim to be, and here's how we know, because they're connected to this vocation through these people. And here are the vocations that are mentioned, five distinct vocations are highlighted by the text, priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants. So five groups of people that are connected to reinstituting worship, all with official jobs that have to do with uh, vocations that have to do with leading worship, leading choirs, being musicians, gatekeepers, and set up people, and Yeah, they all had official titles connected back through their family tree. So I'm the son of so-and-so, and and my father was a gatekeeper there. I have a right to be a gatekeeper in the new temple that you are building. And all of these people, uh, it's a little bit cumbersome. That's why we're going to read every verse. But it's important because what it's saying to you is it's significant because we have a right to reclaim the titles of our family. We have a right to be this and do this because our, our family did this and we are connected to our family. Therefore, we are connected to the promises and privileges of the past. Now, that's part of what it means to be in a, in a covenant. If you were in Abraham's covenant or the Mosaic covenant, you're connected to a people and to God through a, a, a covenant that is very, very ancient. Now, what gets interesting to me is the end of the chapter, because now the author turns to those with no proof, no documentation of having descended from Israel. I'm going to read verse number 59. The following came up from the towns of Tel Melah, and Tel, Tel means hill, Tel Harsha, Kerub, and Adon, and Emmer, but they could not show that their families were descended from Israel, the descendants of Deliah, Tobiah, very important name in this story, and Nakoda. And from among the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, Hakaz, and Barzillai. This is a famous name from the Old Testament. A man who had married a daughter of Barzillai the Gileadite. Well, Barzillai the Gileadite is like one of David's really good friends. Guy who really 
blessed the king and took care of David back in the old days. These people all searched for their family records, verse 62, but they could not find them. Well, now before you freak out, here's why you couldn't find them. An army overran your country and burned down your houses and your cities and when you're trying to gather up the kids and run for your life, if you didn't grab that special box, I don't know what your family is like. If you, didn't, you know, you're in there like, you can open the safe with no problem unless there's pressure like this. And then you're fumbling and bumbling and you can't figure, you know. Uh, and so they just ran for their lives. Well, you, you know, the papers are left behind. The houses are burned. You know, family trees are now missing. Family Bibles with records are, are missing. Things, things like that. So they lost their records, and so they were excluded from the priesthood. These are all people trying to make a claim to be a part of the priesthood. They lost their claim to the priesthood because they were pronounced unclean. You can't prove that you're from the right family. Verse 63, the governor ordered them not to eat of any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering with the Urim and the Thummim. That's the, that's the look I expected to get this morning. All right. Uh, let me deal with it like this. I'll get to Urim and Thummim in just a second. I'll just leave that verse sitting there so I know to come back to it. Either these people were, A, told by their parents they were Cherokees. Now, do you see where my story's going? These people are making a claim and saying, yeah, we're Levites. Yeah, my, we're descendants from the high priest. Where have you been? Well, for 70 years I've been in Babylon. And the story my parents and my grandparents have told me for 70 years is that our people descend from Aaron the high priest. There's the story. So either they were told by their parents that they were descended from the priesthood and really weren't. There is no DNA testing in these days to find out. Or B... They really were descended from Aaron the high priest, and the paperwork was burned up in the siege of their city. Now, both of those are very plausible, right? I mean, either one of those could happen. I'm a victim of one of them. You may be a victim of one of them. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to go get your passport or not, and you realize, oh, they want my original birth certificate. Anybody been down this path before? And you're going to have to go find a hospital. You're going to go have to find an agency. You're going to have to go do paperwork to get an original. And then I showed up with one from HEB Hospital where I was born. And they said, no, that's not the right one. That's a hospital one. You need one with this raised seal. And so I go through the whole thing again, trying to find out how to get that. All I'm saying is paperwork can be important, even in your modern society. And that's why I urge every one of you as early in life as you can, get that birth certificate, go get, your, go get your passport. You need your passport, go get it, have it, it's good for 10 years, pay the fee, d deal with it, okay? Now, those people listed were making a claim that were part of the priesthood, but they could not substantiate their claims. So the governor steps in, Zerubbabel, and the governor says, listen, cease and desist from partaking of the priest's meal, because we, are, we were exiled for breaking the rules, and now we're back in the land, and the one thing we're going to for sure not do is tick God off by breaking the rules. Now, this mindset has permeated them, okay? 
And so Zerubbabel says, we're going to err on the rule side, and we're going to be super zealous about rules. So cease and desist from partaking with the priest stuff. Uh, we're super sensitive about this. Stand down until a new high priest is officially operating with a temple, with the priest's helmet and the priest's breastplate and the priest's clothes and all of the priest stuff that we need to rebuild and reinstitute so that we can get back to where we used to be. Now, here's the Urim and the Thummim. In the breastplate of the high priest, there was a little pocket. And in that pocket, there were two things. I don't have the right words here. I'd say dice, but that's not the right word. I'd say chicken bones, but that's not the right word. Uh, I, I, I don't know what the... They had two, I'd say marbles, but that's not the right word. There's a little pocket in the breastplate, and there's two things in that pocket. They are Urim and Thummim. And what those are, and I don't want to make light of this, uh, but it's the only way I know to describe it to people of, of my generation. Those little things in there, he would pull out when they couldn't figure out who's telling the truth. When, oh, you claim to be from the tribe of Levi. Well, we'll see about that, Mrs. Webster. Ching! Ha! You're right. Welcome to the priesthood. Okay? That's the way it worked. Like casting lots, you see about in the Bible a lot. There was a little pocket in the breastplate of the priesthood. And when they came to an impasse to which you could not figure out the way forward, the priest would reach in and pull out these two I'll tell you what it's like, and I don't mean to make fun of it. It's like a magic eight ball. Now, if you're my age, does everybody know what a magic eight ball is? Okay, all right, well, good for you. You're not as backward as I thought you were. You're some very civilized people. It's like having a magic eight ball, and you, when you come to an impasse where there's no documentary proof, you're like, is Tobiah part of the priesthood? And you hope you get yes or no, and what are those other crazy answers on Magic 8 Ball? It could be. You know, and it would, it would give an answer. Now that's the way, that's what those little things in the breastplate were. He'd take them out and cast them, and it would either give a yes or a no answer. How about that? Yes or no answer. And so here's what the governor says. Zerubbabel says, until we set the priesthood back, we got a man, but until we get everything functioning that way again with the Urim and the Thummim in the breastplate and we're officiating in the temple, you're going to have to stand down. It may take a year or two to get this all reestablished, but when the priesthood is operating with the magic eight ball again, we'll answer your question officially in the house of God. And if the answer is yes, we'll give you all the rights and privileges that come with your ancestry. And if the answer is no, then just we've erred on the safe side. We do not want to offend God by breaking his rules. Now, through this type of literary structure that, that you're encountering, the author is trying to set the tone for you of how determined they are to figure out who is actually genetically Abraham's children and who is not. And when war comes and nations are just scattered to the wind and reconstituted and scattered and reconstituted, I mean, 
we, we now have all these Ukrainians living in Hungary and Romania and Switzerland and Germany and Poland. Does anybody think that a teenager who was born in Ukraine, now living in Romania or some other country, is not going to fall in love with a Romanian teenager? And they're going to marry, and they're going to have children, and they're going to say, well, we want a passport from Romania. And the government's going to say, do you have your birth certificates? And they're going to say, are you kidding? The Russians burned them down when they invaded my city uh, uh, last year. You understand how hard it is in times of chaos and warfare to recreate civilization and societal structures. And so they're fixated on, we, we got to know who's Abraham's kids. And boy, unless we can just really know, we're going to be, be really careful. And they believe that the ancestry, the DNA, the ancestry, the genealogical record was the defining marker of their identity. Now, this may be the most important thing about saying the whole sermon. They believed that being a descendant of Abraham and knowing you had the documentary proof, having Abraham's DNA was the defining marker of, a, of your identity. And without being biologically purebred from Abraham's descent, you had no relationship to God and you had no claim on the covenant promises of God and you had no claim on being called the people of God or worshiping God in Jerusalem. And we'll go real slow right here. Don't answer out loud. Were the leaders right or wrong in this approach? Form an opinion. Were they right or wrong? May I ask it a different way? What is the defining marker of being God's people? Don't answer out loud. Answer in your heart. Be sure what you believe. What is the defining marker? What is the defining evidence in your life that you are God's people? Which leads us now to talk about this for just a minute. So exactly who's in and who's out? That's what I want to know. Because now you're talking about who has a right to worship God and access God and be called God's family. Suddenly now, this is not an Old Testament story. Suddenly now, this is something I'm very interested in. I want to know who's in and who's out. Because if you have to spit in a vial and get a DNA report from 23andMe that says, yes, you're a descendant of Abraham, most of you aren't going to heaven. And you have no claim to God or to God's promises. Doesn't that leave you in an awkward spot? You came to church thinking you're God's people this morning, praying to God, singing to God, giving to God, giving your worship to God, giving a portion of the income you've worked all week so hard, giving that over to God's uh, kingdom to advance the gospel around the world, and suddenly to find out you have no right or claim or part with this God. Wouldn't that be a shock to your system? So who's in and who's out? Well, to answer that question... Let, let me remind you why they went into exile. Let's remember why they went into Babylonian captivity before we talk about reclaiming identity. How did they lose their identity? Well, their fathers broke the covenant with God by going after idols. This is the crime. They worshipped idols. And that is just God's no-no. I mean, that is just, 
at the top of the thou shalt not list of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image of anything in, 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 in beasts or in the sea or that flies through the air or in the sky above. You shall not bow down thyself to them. You shall not worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And I will punish the iniquity of the children of the third and fourth generation. This is a big deal to God. That's what I want you to see. And if it's a big deal to God, it needs to be a big deal to us. Okay? And God says, I I can tolerate a lot of nonsense. But when you bow down to a rock and you give it worship, instead of giving that worship to the creator of the rock, I take that as a personal insult. And I understand why he would. The fathers broke the covenant by worshiping idols. They wanted to be like all the other nations. They didn't want to be God's people. They wanted to be like everybody else. It's a kind of a thing, isn't it? You just want to be like everybody else. They didn't want to be uniquely God's people. And what made them unique was their worship of Yahweh only. Every other nation worshipped multiple gods. And Israel worshipped Yahweh, God Almighty, only. No other gods, just God. That was what made them unique. Belonging to God as a special people who worship only God was their identity. And when they walked away from their relationship with God, they were no longer identifiable as God's people. They were unidentifiable. You say, who are God's people? I don't know. These people worship idols. They used to call themselves God's people, but now they're idolaters. There is no identity marker. They lost their identity marker when they worshiped idols. They're not unique. They are just like the rest of the world. And, and the whole point of the covenant system in the Bible that frames and holds the whole story together is that God could not find a people who would be his people. He created Adam. They didn't want to be his people. They rebelled against him. And he tried to work through their family. And it was murder and mayhem until you get to chapter 5. And it's the whole world's corrupt. And he chooses Noah and says, let's start again. And the effects of the flood only last one generation. And we're right back to the Tower of Babel where everybody's rebelling against God. And there's no nation of people that want to be his people. And God says, since there is no nation existing that wants to be my people, I'm just going to go find a faithful man and a woman. I'm going to build a whole new nation from them. So he finds Abraham and Sarah and builds his own nation who's in a covenant relationship. And he says to them, will you be my people? And they said, we would like to be your He said, then let's do it. And then the man says, yeah, but I'm 100 years old and my wife is barren. God says, don't worry about it. I got all that worked out. Okay. And so then God starts doing miracles through this family and makes Israel a nation where there was, never was a nation. Now I just want to ask you a question. Where did God get the material to build the nation? They're Gentiles. Because there are no Jews. God says, I'm going to just do a thing called Israel. Israel is an idea. It's a dream of God. Israel is not a DNA. Please hear me. Israel is an idea. A dream of God Almighty to have a people who will have a heart to worship Him and be fully devoted to Him. A people that he will bless with the windows of heaven open, pouring down blessing on them if they'll give back to him and give their lives to him and dedicate themselves to him. God will care for them and bless them and prosper them. All of these promises are to a people that will be God's people. But since there weren't any people who were that way, God said, I'll just build a nation. Builds the nation of Israel on that premise. And when they walked away from God... 
they lost their identity as those people. Now, let me see if I can tell this story of Abraham in a different way. God said, I'm going to make you a unique, treasured nation. But because of idolatry, your children have lost their identity. And after all these years now, I've brought them back into the land to reset Israel. And listen, hopes are high. We're going to establish the temple. We're going to be build worship. We're going to be God's people. Come on, guys. Let's do it. That's kind of where they're at, okay? It's like a big pep rally of 100 years here. Let's do it. Let's be God's people. But after all of these years have passed, the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren of Abraham have missed something. They think it's about DNA, but they've missed something very critical to being the identity of God's people. Abraham's relationship with God was through faith in God. This is what you're not hearing about in Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, Malachi, Haggai. This is the missing thing. You say, well, we've got the documents. Yeah, 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 you've got the documents. But do you have any faith in God? Do you have a personal relationship with God? It was Abraham's faith that brought him into a relationship with God. Let me read from Romans chapter 4 because this is Paul's great argument. He uses Abraham as his argument to Israel. Here's what Paul says, Romans 4. What does the scripture say? Well, here's what it says. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised. Gentiles. In order that the righteousness may also be credited to them. Verse 12. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but it was through the righteousness that comes by faith. This is Paul's argument. It's not about DNA. Being God's people is about faith. And somehow throughout the years that had past of history in there, God's people thought obeying the rules made them God's people. They thought that the law made them God's people. And they became fixated on the rules rather than fixated on a relationship with God by faith. They became fixated on their ancestry rather than being fixated on a people who have a changed heart wholly devoted to Almighty God. So even though they claimed to be God's people... Their hearts were always drifting between God and idols and God and legalism and God and pride and God and, and, and genealogical records. And, God. and they began to worship their geneal- genealogy. They began to worship the law. They began to worship their position. And as a result, their claim is being proven false. They're saying, oh, we have documentation. We're God's people. Listen, as... One of God's prophets, he will step on the scene and say, false, false claim. You've got the paperwork, you don't have a right heart. And the paperwork does not trump a heart. (laughs) 
And, and that's what the prophets, you're going to hear them talk about. God asked one of his prophets, Hosea. Now, this will come out as we teach the prophets. God asked the prophets to do some wild things. He asked them to do street drama and plays and skits and symbolic things. And one of the things God asked Hosea to do is, I want you to name your son something funny in order to be a living witness to Israel. It's in Hosea 1.9. The Lord said, I want you to call your son Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. You don't think God can get snarky? Can you imagine this? Every time Jose is out in public, oh, I've lost my kid, goes up to the speaker at Walmart, say, can you page my kid? I've lost him in the store. What's his name? You're not my son. Loami. Uh, you're not my son. Can you come to the front desk, please? And everybody's looking around. Who names their kid? You're not my son. And God's prophet says, God made me name my son that because he wanted all of y'all to hear this. You're not my kids. Oh, but we've got the rules. We've got the, we've got my, I've got my ancestry chart. I've got my family tree. God says, you don't have a heart for me. And that kills everything. That kills everything. You're not my kids. He promised them back in Deuteronomy when he made the covenant that if they broke the covenant, the covenant curses would come upon them instead of the covenant blessings. Just read one verse of that from Deuteronomy 28. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please God to ruin you and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. And when you are reading the book of Daniel and Ezekiel, you realize the covenant curses have come to pass just as God said they would. So then King Cyrus, 70 years later, issues a decree that they can go back and it's this national opportunity to return to God. We messed it up so bad, but it's like our big moment. It's like our big happy ending to the Old Testament. Old Testament's been a mess up till this point. There haven't been really any many great uh, role models to follow. But now we're going back into the land. This is like going to be our big ending. We're going to renew the promises of God. And, and, and so now what you know is it's that faith that connects you to the identity of your forefathers, not just DNA. In other words, you want to be Abraham's kids, do what Abraham did. He believed God. You want to be David's kids, do, do what David did. He had a heart for God. You want to be a child of, of the, the, the great men and women of God, then do what they have courage like Esther. Be, be like God's people. Act like they act. That's where your identity is rooted. Then Jeremiah the prophet comes on the scene. He says this, I will surely gather them from all the lands. Wherever I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath, I will bring them back to this place and I will let them live in safety and they will be my people and I will be their God. It's always been about relationship. Again, from Hosea, I will plant her for myself in the land and I will show my love to the one that I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, Quotes, you are my people. In other words, God says, I can reverse it all very quickly if you'll give me your heart. I can call you my people and I can make you my people and you will say you are my God. This is a story about renewed relationships if they want to renew them. I want to suggest to you this morning that it is your relationship with God that creates your identity. 
It's not the, go get your ancestry done. That's fascinating. And it'll give you some sense of where you belong. But if you really want a sense of identity, I'm going to tell you this morning that it's faith in God that creates an identity. An identity that you can pass to your children and to your grandchildren. An identity that is very eternal and long-lasting. Although Israel has ceased to exist as God's people, he never stopped loving them. Listen, when you get frustrated and hurt and you've quit on God, God's never quit on you. There's probably been a time in your life when you walked away. And I just want to say to you, as a reminder from God, He never walked away from you. He went with you when you walked away. And He loved you and gently brought you back. He has never left you. He has promised in the New Testament, I will put my spirit in your heart and I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the world. Well, now there's a promise that you can hang your hat on. And if God's pulling you back this morning, and I want you to be like Israel, fired up. I've got another chance. This is what's beautiful about God. This may be your fourth chance or your fifth or your hundredth chance. It's okay. God's giving you another chance and you get some excitement in your heart and say, okay, I'm going I'm to get it right this time. I'm going to give God my heart. I'm going to give God my, my devotion. And let me, see if I can, let me see if I can bring this to some conclusion this morning. We come to, lastly, identity and inheritance. In the post-exile period, our hopes are running high that Israel's going to return. She's going to be a nation of God's people. The temple's going to be rebuilt. And Jerusalem's going to be like the epicenter of Jehovah worship on planet Earth. That's what you hope. That Jerusalem is going to be like all the nations of the world will come to find God at uh, Jerusalem. But these three waves of returning Jews and the three leaders, what you're about to discover in the story in the coming weeks, is that the leaders become their own worst enemies. Rather than focusing on developing a heart for God and a relationship with God, the leaders become so fixated on ethnic purity, they become so fixated on rule following, that the legalism of the leaders kills the revival before it gets off the ground. Can a religious or political leader completely kill what God's trying to do in the community of God's people? Evidently so. So I want to say something to our deacons and our elders and the leaders and the discipleship makers here at our church. The ministry is in your hands. As go you goes the work of the Lord. Your hearts are revived and on fire and devoted and dedicated. So goes disciple making, gospel sharing, multiplication. So go the baptism. So go the salvations. As we retreat into something else, and in their case it's legalism and rule following and ethnic purity, as we retreat into our own problems, we can find that we can make the same mistake they made. You can kill the revival. Now this period spans a hundred years. I'm going to talk you through Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah in the coming weeks. And I want to go and give you a forecast. All three leaders end with anticlimactic disappointment. And you're going to be asking yourself as we go forward, wait, we've got all this opportunity. We're free. We're God's people. Where did they go wrong? 
Let me tell you where I think they went wrong. They didn't understand their identity. That's why I wanted to preach a whole sermon about this. They didn't understand their identity. Is worship of God only for Jews? Is temple access, is it to be restricted so that no one can come unless you can have the right paperwork to to worship before the altar of God? So how did we ever get here? You're watching it play out before your eyes in these books. You're watching it happen. By the time you get to Jesus Christ, there are signs nailed on the temple walls that say, on penalty of your death, if you enter these doors and you are a Gentile, if you cross this point, your life is in your own hands, we will execute you. Seriously? Jeremy, let's send that mailer out, okay? To Everyone's welcome, unless... And then we'll put a sign, you know, on penalty of death, we'll execute... Are you kidding me? Does this sound like God? Does this sound like Jesus? Absolutely not. Something is going very wrong, even though they're trying to start a revival. I've shown you now for 31 weeks, as we preach, we will have at the end of the year preached through the entire Old Testament. I've showed you for 30 weeks that the people of the Old Testament are not being put in front of you so you can be like them. There are very few people that are heroes over here in the sense you want to do what they did with their lives. But there are heroes over here and God's asking you to say, do what they did with their faith. Have faith like Abraham. Don't have multiple wives like him. Okay? Have faith like, you know, David. But don't, don't, kill, don't be a murderer like David. That's the story that the Bible's telling. And now this group of Jews is going back to restart and they're like, oh, you've got to be ethnically pure to be a part of Israel. That blows my mind. Absolutely blows my mind that you can hold that position. Let me tell you why. Because Abraham and Sarah were Gentiles when God called them. When they want to get a wife for their son Isaac, they go back and get Rebecca, a Gentile woman, to marry their Jew son. When they, as parents, want to get brides for their children, they tell them, don't intermarry in the land. Go back and get a Gentile bride from our own people. So Jacob goes and marries Rachel and Leah, who are Gentiles, and gets two slave handmaids that are also Gentiles. And from those four women come the 12 tribes of Israel, who then are all half-breeds. Half Jew, half Gentile. At least by my thinking, I can't figure it out any other way. I've already preached to you that Tamar is a Gentile and she's accepted in the family of God and called righteous. I've already preached to you that Rahab is presented as a righteous prostitute and part of the family tree of Jesus. She's a Gentile. I've already preached the sermon to you that Ruth is called beloved and blessed and, and, and pronounced a blessing upon and becomes the you know, the great-grandmother uh, of King David and part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. She's a Moabitess. She's a Gentile. I've already spoken to you about Bathsheba, whom David had children with, and King Solomon is a descendant of David and Bathsheba. King Solomon is half Jew, half Gentile. I don't know how else to work this out. <laughs> the Jews are like, you've got to be pure blood to be a part of us. I'm like, none of you are pure blood. It's like an American saying, well, you've got to be this. 
What are you kidding? Look around the room. There is no pure blood left in America. We, we, we've so intermarried, and, 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 and I'm not speaking against that. I think, you know, fall in love, marry, and there's no Jew or Gentile in Jesus Christ. Just be free about that. Now, I don't, I'm really troubled by what I'm reading over here in the, in the old days. It's the Apostle Paul that reminds us you don't need Abraham's DNA. What you need is Abraham's faith. Let me read you one more from Romans and I'll close. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. You see, because Israel is an idea. It's not about DNA. And what he says is not all the people who are DNA Israel are actually Israel in God's eyes. Verse 7, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Oh, on the contrary. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children of physical descent who are God's children. But it is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. My question to you this morning is, is simply this. You're not a part of the kingdom unless you receive the king. And if your faith is in the king Jesus, you're part of the family. You may have come to church this morning saying, you know, I'm going, but I don't know how I fit in the family of God. If you have faith, tweet this, Erica, if you have faith, you fit. If you're wondering, how do I fit in here at Cornerstone? Let me ask you a question. Do you have faith in God? Then you fit here at Cornerstone. You say, but pastor, my ancestry, we don't care, and neither does God. You say, but pastor, my baggage, let's just learn to let it go, okay? You say, yeah, but I've made some mistakes. Well, you're in a good company this morning. If you have faith, then you fit with God's people. No one's going to turn you away and no one's going to reject you. You have access to the things of God by faith in Jesus Christ. You have connected yourself to eternity, to God. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. That's really the big question this morning I want you to think about. If you're trying to work out your identity in some way this morning, start with faith in Jesus Christ. If you're trying to figure out how you fit in the family of God and in the story of God, you fit because you're Abraham's people. You say, well, I'm not Jewish. No, but you have the faith of Abraham that makes you Abraham's people. If you have Christ, you fit with the family of God. What makes you part of God's kingdom is believing in God's king. I guess my first question would be then, have you made him your king I mean very deliberately very intentionally have you said Jesus I receive you as my savior my God and my king if you've never done that this is a very exciting moment for you this morning if you've never done that I want to lead you in a prayer to do that the Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If belief is rising in your heart right now, 
then let's follow through and let's call upon Jesus and ask him to be your Lord and Savior this morning. If you're ready to make that prayer, I want you to pray with me. Pray like this. Dear God, God, I confess to you this morning that I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. God, I need you in my life. I want you in my life. I want to be your child. I want to be your people. I believe, Jesus, that you are everything the Bible declares you to be. The Son of God who came down to be our Savior. So this morning, I'm going to ask you, Jesus, to please forgive me of my sins. I believe you paid for my sins on the cross, and I now accept your forgiveness and your pardon. Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. From this moment, you are the king of my life. I bow the knee to you. I pledge allegiance to you. All that I am and all that I have belongs to you from this moment forward. You are my Lord. You are my God. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for saving me today. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you prayed that prayer, somewhere in these next few minutes, I want you to slip out of your seat and just go to the back of the room where our deacons are. And I want you to just walk up to one of the deacons and say, I prayed with Pastor. Let them pray over you and encourage you and show you the next steps. It's very important that you not do this in secret, but that you share it with someone else. Jesus said, if you would confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. And we're not going to ask you to come make a speech before the church, but please let someone know that you've prayed and received Christ as your Savior today. Now, for every Christian, I want you to turn your heart to faithfulness right now. And I want you to use this Sunday and the coming Sundays as a launching point for your own revival. A time when you can say to God, God, I'm coming back. God, God, I'm here. I've let some things slide. My zeal isn't what it used to be. Relight the fires, God. God, fill me with your spirit. God, in these weeks, please do something in my life where I'm back to where I was or I'm going beyond where I was God I long for you I long to promote your kingdom I long to be a better part of your family God do not let me be content with just attending church and keeping a few rules God I want to be passionate about my relationship with you and my walk with you God please draw me close to you God, give me a heart for you. Give me a desire for the things of God. Give me a zeal and a passion for the kingdom of God. If you'll let God do this in your life, you're going to change someone else's life. Probably your children. Probably your grandchildren. And maybe your neighbors. Or your co-workers but God's going to change other people's lives through you if you'll allow him to pull you up close and relight the fires of a passionate worship with God 
Father, we bow before you this morning. Many, many of your children right now, Lord, with tender hearts. Lord, we are hearing the stories and seeing the stories of how you brought your people back. And Lord, we're very nervous because we believe the stories are about to run off the rails. They're not going to do what you want them to do. God, I'm very nervous as a pastor in this modern generation, Lord, that you keep pulling your people close and giving them fresh starts and they're not going to do what you want them to do. God, I pray that you would do some miracle in this room. That in these days, our eyes and our vision would become so clear about what it means to be your people and to passionately follow you and to promote the kingdom that our lives would be transformed in these days. God, with every service, it's like a covenant renewal to us where you're giving us a new start, a new chance to get it right. Lord, help us to get it right. That's our prayer. Thank you, God, that even though we're outside of the Jewish community, that this morning you have included we Americans in your story and in your family. God, thank you. We were the outsiders. And now you have put us inside the family. And that's all because of your great love. God, thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let me read the benediction from the book of Numbers this morning. Moses said over the covenant people, may the Lord bless you and may the Lord protect you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and may the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and may the Lord